Welcome to Everybody Hates Me, Let's Talk About Stigma, a podcast hosted by Dr. Carmen Logie. She's a Canada Research Chair in Global Health Equity and Social Justice with Marginalized Populations and an Associate Professor at the University of Toronto's Factor in Wintosh Faculty of Social Work. Every week, the show features amazing speakers from around the world talking about stigma from research, lived experiences, and activism perspectives. Why should we care about stigma? What can we do about it? Thank you for tuning in. Let's start the show. Listeners, I am so thrilled to introduce our guest today, Dr. Julia Marcus. She is an infectious disease epidemiologist and assistant professor in the Department of Population Medicine at Harvard Medical School and Harvard Pilgrim Healthcare Institute and adjunct faculty at the Fenway Institute, which is on my bucket list of places to visit. Her research focuses on improving the implementation of pre-exposure prophylaxis, also known as PrEP, to prevent new HIV infections and promote sexual health. And... She also has contributed many timely op-eds on current events such as COVID-19 in a series of articles in The Atlantic. And that's actually how I came to know about her work. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. And your articles are so great that I'm subscribing to The Atlantic. So I don't know that we can put a hashtag Atlantic subscription due to you. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks so much. So I'm curious, you know, I I introduced you with with your bio on your website. But if you were in an elevator, imagine pre-COVID, and someone was to ask you, what do you do? How do you how do you describe that in your elevator pitch? It's so funny. I think I answer that question differently every single time I'm asked. I don't really it's amazing. Have a, well, because I, I, you could say, like in the past, I would sometimes say I'm an epidemiologist and people would be like, what's that? And I feel like now I could probably say I'm an epidemiologist and get a different response. So maybe my, my answer will change moving forward. But I often say I do HIV research. And if people ask more questions, I might tell them that I, I work on PrEP and Often that leads to a conversation about what's prep, and then I'm excited to talk about it. So that, that's usually the, the road I go down. I agree that there's a more awareness of epidemiologists because I was at a, like a patio the other day with two epidemiologists, and the person who owns the bar came over and was chatting and was saying that his daughter is doing epidemiology and he's like, and you're epidemiologist. Now we all know who they are because of the pandemic. So you have a new appreciation for you. So if I'm going to show up, I don't know, are you in Boston? Uh, um, Yeah, I'm close to Boston. So if I'm going to show up in Boston right now at your house with a time machine and I'm going to like have space for physically distancing in the time machine And I'm going to say, bring me back to the time and place, you know, when you started, because I think your work is really interesting, but you also have this ability to communicate with the public in ways that I think are really engaging and also 
For me, reading your work on COVID-19 and on trying to destigmatize like the blame and the shame a lot of people are 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 sort of attributing to people in their various ways of moving through the world and maybe encountering the pandemic. If I was to say, bring me a time machine to where you thought, I think we need to like communicate differently about risk and about infection. When did that start becoming, you know, take me to the time and place where you're like, oh, this is really what I want to do. Well, I mean, I think my thinking and talking and writing about shame and stigma has been going on for so long and started really in college, I think, maybe even before that, around sexual health. And I've been very linear about that. Like my undergrad thesis was on criminalization of sexual deviance and then, you know, everything from their HIV research and really um, focusing a lot on, on stigma for many years. And now even working on PrEP, it's so clear the ways that stigma is impeding our ability to prevent HIV and mm-hmm. not just in the US, but but worldwide. So that, that kind of thinking has been going on for a long time. And then there was a moment in the COVID epidemic when I realized that what was happening during COVID was really reminiscent of some of those same patterns that have happened with HIV and sexual health and substance use mm-hmm. and other stigmatized areas of health. I joined Twitter a year ago, so I'm pretty new to social media, but I was so struck in, I think it was April, when we started to see a lot of online shaming of people who were starting to venture out of their houses and apartments and go into parks and beaches. And these photos were circulating with so much anger. And I I just started to get really worried about what was happening. And it felt like people had a lot of fear and it was turning into anger and blaming and so I started tweeting about that, and and then an Atlantic editor actually wrote to me and asked if I wanted to write the first piece that I ended up writing in early May, and then that's kind of how that all happened. That's amazing. You get a writing, a writing cake from your tweets. That's awesome. Yeah, it was totally, it was, it was a total surprise. <laughs> that's amazing. So I want you to tell the listeners a little more about why does stigma matter when it comes to the COVID-19 pandemic? So why shouldn't we blame and shame people for going to the beach? <laughs> and I, you know, I've, I've written a couple of commentaries also on COVID stigma and I, you know, but I know that you come from like a super unique position and you're able to communicate this so well. So I really want you to like explain why is it bad if we blame and shame people? (laughs) Why does it matter? Yeah, I mean, I think first I'll say that the instinct to blame and shame people in the middle of a public health crisis is totally understandable. We are seeing people do things that we perceive to be not just putting themselves at risk, but because this is a highly contagious disease, maybe putting other people at risk and, and by by doing so kind of indirectly putting us at risk. And so there's this way that it it feels natural and sometimes good to express our anger at people who we see as being selfish and reckless and putting people at risk. So that is true. But at the same time, when we think about this from a public health perspective, what we really want to do is 
help people avoid risky situations to maximize public health. And when we yell at people, <laughs> um, we, we don't actually accomplish that goal. It's so clear from other areas of health that when we tell people that they're bad people for what they're doing, for not using a condom, for injecting drugs, whatever the case may be, it doesn't put them in a place where they're able to change that behavior. Mm. They just feel bad about themselves. <laughs> and, and actually what it does is it makes people want to hide their behavior. And so then... You know, even if it's not shaming one individual in particular, but just kind of a culture of sharing these photos and shaming, that creates this and perpetuates this culture of blaming individuals for their behavior. And then what happens is when somebody has a family gathering and there is an outbreak and contact tracers want to know who was at that event, people will not disclose because mm -hmm. there is this stigma that we have all been perpetuating through, through the shaming. And so that's one reason. And the other reason I would say, I mean, maybe there's many reasons, but one, one other one I'll mention is just, I think that when we focus on blaming individuals, we get really distracted from the things that actually matter. Mm -hmm. um, we get distracted from the failures of government to support and protect its citizens. We get distracted from where risk really lies, which is often in places where people don't have a choice but to be exposed, let's say on the job or in their crowded household. So we get really distracted by this moral outrage about people frolicking on beaches or, or people having these, you know, indoor parties. And it's kind of satisfying to imagine that we can control these things. Like if, if these people would just behave better, we could end this epidemic. But actually what needs to happen is much less, it's like less sexy. It's like, well, actually we, we really need supportive policies that are going to keep people safer. We need places where people can isolate outside of their homes. We need paid sick leave so that people don't have to choose between, you know, staying at home when they're sick or getting a paycheck. And so even though those are less compelling when we think about what we want to click on and retweet, you know, it's, that's actually where our focus needs to be. And so the stigma becomes a distraction. It's so true. Like even in Canada, so I'm, I'm in Toronto, there's been some outbreaks in, I think, a meat factory and in some places where folks were some agriculture and there's nowhere near the outrage to those employers that there is to like you know there was an a strip club that had an outbreak and the level of sex work stigma that was combined with like COVID stigma I was like huh you know what? I think there was more people infected through the meat plant, but I didn't see this level of outrage. So it's very interesting how we can get distracted from the the larger institutions that could be doing more, you know, even with regards to PPEs and things like that and testing and but we want to blame the even even me I started going to the gym a couple of weeks ago and I'm like oh I'm gonna tell anybody to go to the gym and right a small boutique gym with like tons of like sanitizers and cleaning and physical distancing and all that but I was like hmm you know it's, oh you're going to the gym <laughs> And you feel like, oh, wow, there's a lot of judgment on on our like individual actions and not on these governments, you know, or employers. 
Yeah, and I think one of the things that is linked for me between the COVID stigma that we're seeing and HIV stigma and also substance use stigma, I think there's a common theme, which is that what is stigmatized is often what's pleasurable. Like we, mm. we really have a very anti-pleasure society, I think. And that plays out in, you know, stigmatizing people for using PrEP because they may use condoms less often. And then it plays out in COVID where we stigmatize people for going to the beach because <laughs> it's frivolous, but actually it's low risk. And, you know, we, we and the strip club example is perfect where it, it just seems so frivolous. Why do we have a strip club open in a pandemic when, you know, we should be focusing on opening schools? But that was literally actually, hundreds of trees, probably thousands of the exact same thing. Yep. And it's a fair question, but let's also think about risk. What is the actual risk in the strip club? And people have this outsized focus on places like that where they imagine that the risk must be enormous because people are having so much fun that they should not be having. And, and actually, it's not fun that gets people <laughs> sick or transmits the virus. And there are ways to enjoy your life while keeping the risk of transmission low. And actually, public health people should have an interest in people enjoying their lives. That, that matters. It's part of well-being and health. Why do we stigmatize pleasure? Oh, what a good question. <laughs> is it like linked to morality? Like we think pleasure is immoral, you know, from the Goffman's, like there's the immoral other. They <laughs> And they are, let's be real. I mean, a lot of times queer folks, we do have more fun, I think. <laughs> so maybe, you know, there's like this link between what people are calling immoral and fun. <laughs> Which is quite sad, I think, for the world in general, is if pleasurable activities like drinking or, you know, or identities like all queer people, you know, are like linked with, with somehow stigma. I don't know if that's where it might fly in. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's probably um, people who, could ha who would have much more intelligent things to say than I do about <laughs> Puritanism and our history and... I'm not sure how to explain it. I just see the effects of it in health in so many ways and how toxic it is. And I mean, even the discussion around bars and of course, strip clubs are such an easy one because sex work stigma is just so, mm. so easy to come by, unfortunately. But bars too, I think have been unfairly stigmatized in this pandemic. I think it's one thing to say bars are a high-risk place for transmission. It's another thing to say bars play no role, no worthy role in our society, when in fact mm. they are a place where people gather and are socially connected and enjoy themselves and feel a sense of community. And those things are important. And I actually, I think there's a way that we have forgotten or perhaps dismissed what is actually essential in thinking about, you know, in March, it was like, what, what's essential? Going to the grocery store is essential. Going to the pharmacy is essential. But social contact is not is apparently an essential. Enjoying your life is an essential. You know, there's all these ways that we and, and now education, in-person education is an essential. And there, there are ways that we made decisions about essential versus not essential that I think had we made different decisions, you know, we being society as a whole, our response might have looked very different.
and would look different now if we were saying, you know what, for college students, for example, social contact is essential. We can't just tell them to just all stay six feet apart forever, you know, and that changes the way you approach policy and messaging and health. Your point is so wonderful. Is joy essential? Is love essential? I would argue that it is. Is connection (laughs) essential? Yes. I mean, what kind of world are we living in? I want to go back to a point. So I I have three stigma questions and one of them we already answered. The second one, you you mentioned it a couple of times. I just wonder if you wanted, if there's anything else you wanted the listeners to know. But you just said stigma is toxic. Did you, the second question is, what does it look like for a person who's stigmatized or what is it? How does, how does it impact them and you mentioned the word toxic which is such a powerful way i think to to describe the impacts of stigma yeah i mean maybe i will share an experience that i had in the summer with covid stigma i mean we all have different experiences in our lives with different stigmatized identities and there are many i could share but i feel like this one is really relevant to what we're what we're all kind of facing right now so my um, I went on a vacation with some friends. My family went on a vacation, and this was um, in July, I think. And and we decided we're going to, you know, we're all fairly low risk, and we're going to just go on this vacation and hope for the best, and mm-hmm. that we really needed to do this, and we wanted our kids to play with other kids without being distanced and masked, and, and it was great. We had a wonderful time. And then we got home, and we had, like, a little rash of symptoms in our household, and the other family did not, but my son had a, a fever, quite a high fever. And my initial response after, you know, I, I was worried for him and wondering like what, you know, what's going on here. Basically, my second response was shame and feeling mm-hmm. like, you know, ha- like we did something wrong. We should not have gone on this vacation. We shouldn't have enjoyed ourselves. This was not something we, didn't, we needed to do. And now I have to tell all these people that we've come into contact with that, you know, we made this big mistake and did this terrible thing. And now uh, my kid has a fever and maybe we have COVID. And wow. actually it's, and, and it's really, it's a terrible feeling to feel shame. And what happens is then it becomes much harder to tell the people that you need to tell that your kid has a fever. And mm. I could see in that moment where I was like, oh, this is... This is why this is so bad, because it would be so easy for me to say, I don't want to tell people because they're going to judge me. Yeah. And, and, and blame you. Yeah. And, <laughs> and be mad me. at you. <laughs> and, and, and some of them might. But, you know, it, we need to have a culture where we can say, I went on a vacation. My kid has a fever. And the answer is, I hope your kid's okay. Thanks for telling me. And uh, how was your vacation? <laughs> you know? yeah. but, but instead, there's this, this judgment and fear of judgment. And, and that's where public health efforts start to really break down. That's such a great example. I remember even um, going up to see my parents and we had been isolating and we didn't tell anybody. <laughs> you know, they're older and they're in a small community, but, you know, just the mental health of, of people who are older and, you know, don't have any other links to family. Sort of we we made, we made the pros and cons and we're, we weren't careful, but we still were like, oh, we don't really need to, to tell anybody. Like literally, who didn't even put it on Instagram or just like, just because sometimes we have to do like what what we have to do for our families. Like, you know, you you need a vacation, you need to play with other kids or you need to see your your aging parents or, you know, 
But imagine if you were taking public transit to your job as a healthcare worker, you wouldn't be afraid to tell people that because that is a risk that people accept as being essential. But when it comes to seeing family, seeing friends, mental health, staying socially connected, having fun, those are things that we're afraid to talk about because they're so devalued and stigmatized. I agree. Even the way that there was a lot of stigma going on around personal support workers in long-term care facilities who are underpaid, don't have full-time contracts, and were being vilified as being these carriers of COVID-19. And I'm like, they're the people doing super hard work in the long-term care facilities, and they're being more vilified than doctors or nurses. And there must be some sort of class intersection there or there's something going on there too because I didn't see the same blame and shame for doctors and nurses that I did for personal support workers who yeah I don't know if that's the same as in the United States or not but I I did read a lot of problematic blaming of people doing these this really hard work yeah yeah, and I think there's also, even for doctors and nurses and other frontline healthcare workers, there may not be blaming, but there is still stigma in the sense that people assume that they are very high risk and are afraid to get near them. And I definitely have colleagues who've um, faced that kind of stigma and their kids too, like when mm-hmm. other neighborhood kids are you know, afraid to be around these kids because they assume that they're high risk. That is so heartbreaking. I did a training on COVID-19 stigma for healthcare workers in Ontario based on some work I did with the NIH around COVID stigma. And that was exactly this story share. It almost made me cry. It was a one of the physicians said nobody in the neighborhood would play with his daughter. Ugh. And I just I just felt so sad. <laughs> so I said, oh, it's beautiful outside. It's summer. And your daughter is sitting here and nobody will play with her because you happen to be a healthcare provider. It just felt like that's so unfair. So First of all, you're, you know, so what are the implications, you know? <sighs> so the third and final thing, my question I have is, there's listeners walking around listening to this podcast on their headphones how can they be part of the solution? Yeah, I mean, I think this is what I, this is like the call I want to put out to the world right now, which is to take it, for each of us to take it upon ourselves to try to see each other as human beings first and foremost. Because I think now we're in this mode that we went into in March where we started to see each other as these potential vectors of disease. And that's what we think about when we see a group of people at the park. And I do it too. I have to, I have to be aware of it and stop myself. I see a group of people at the park and like, I'm wondering, are you all in one household? And you know, <laughs> some of you are not wearing masks and you're X feet apart, you know, it's, and it's ridiculous. Like the first response ideally would be, this is a, a lovely group of people gathering in my neighborhood on a beautiful day. And I'm so glad that they are getting some social connection, especially during these challenging times. And sure, then you can evaluate, are they wearing masks? How far, you know, whatever you want to do. But if that first response is humanizing people and recognizing that they have, you know, they have their own needs that we're all, we all have needs and we're all trying to meet our needs right now. And I I think that would go a long way. 
more individual empathy and then more if if there's a way for our governments to have a more empathetic response in terms of their communication and their policy that that would go a long way as well but i i yeah so i think that's kind of my call to the world right now i love that call it's really compassion and seeing our shared humanity and maybe I mean, I don't know, like, maybe someone forgot their mask. Like, I was going into a shop the other day, and I rode my motorcycle there, and I had my mask in my pocket, and then the string broke on the mask, and I was like, oh my goodness, what are we going to do? And I'm like, thank God I had a second mask on, but I was like, what if your mask, it just came to my mind, I was like, oh, I would have biked all the way to go somewhere, and then I wouldn't have had a mask. Do you run in without a mask? Do you... Trying to like rig up your mask. <laughs> so it's just like, I think we're just, yeah, be patient. We're all just and gentle. We're all just like trying to figure this out, you know? <sighs> so the last part of this, which you aren't aware of, is wild card questions. Okay, I'm ready. Where the listeners are going to get to know the real you. All right. One first wild card question What are you binging on Netflix? We just started this show called Brief Encounters. I've never heard um, of it. And I don't even know if it's on Netflix. Apparently it's only six episodes, which is so sad because we watched two and got really into it and then discovered there were only six. But it's about these British women who start to do basically Tupperware parties, but for sex toys and exotic lingerie and have this whole like, sexual <laughs> empowerment experience. But there are a lot, there's lots of serious stuff as well. And it's great. I feel like I do, I don't do enough escaping right now. And so it's good to have little escapes here and there. Nice. So it's called Brief Encounters? Yep. Oh, good. I'm always like asking people this so I can add it to the list. <laughs> <laughs> um, the second question is, if you could go for dinner, imagine there's no COVID or we all have vaccines anywhere in the world with anybody you want, living or dead, who would you take and where would you go? Oh my God, that's way too hard. <laughs> ask me anything about like stigma and HIV no, and COVID. This is the wild part. <laughs> this is where they get to know you beyond your work. Oh my God. I'd probably go to some restaurant in the Bay area because I, I, the food in Boston just can't even hold a candle to what we had in California. Who Are I you go? from California? I, I, I was living there for uh, much of my adult life oh, until nice. a few years ago. Yeah. Nice. Um, who would I go with? Um, <laughs> I, I, yeah, I can't answer that. It's way too hard. Way too hard. I, I would like think about it all day to try to answer that question. <laughs> okay. To be continued. I'm, very, I'm really bad at wildcard questions. I'm really good at like ac the academic ones. I think you did great. You did a really good TV show about sex toy Tupperware parties I've never heard of. A lot of people had said The Office. I was like, wow, maybe I should watch that one day. Or <laughs> Freak, which I love. And I keep pleading for Dan Levy to come on this show, please, Dan Levy. We love you so much. Um, <laughs> that's a good happen there. Okay, the third and final wildcard question. What is a piece of advice or wisdom that you have gotten along your journey of life that you want to share with the listeners? God, these are so hard. <laughs> It could be a quote, like a saying, <laughs> or like something, you know, that's been helpful for you. I mean, I guess something I've been thinking about 
lately. Um, I have not until a few months ago been really much in the public eye and then started writing these articles for the Atlantic and talking to the media and being on Twitter more. And I find it challenging in a lot of ways to be so public. But I think one thing that helps me is just thinking about how it's almost like the idea that if you don't, if you're not creating some kind of heat and getting critique and getting pushback, then you're, then what are you doing? You know? Mm -hmm. And so in those moments when I feel like, oh, this is exhausting to be getting so much public feedback, it helps me to remember that that means I'm doing something and maybe it's not exactly right all the time. Of course it's not. We all make mistakes, but at least I'm trying and, and putting something out into the world that's being heard, even if it's not welcomed universally by everyone all the time, <laughs> which of course nothing will be. And what you're putting out is so important. Like you're really putting out this message of compassion, right? And of empathy and of moving beyond our first instinct, which is to police <laughs> <laughs> to judge, right? But just to recognize that and to be like, I think your message is really a beautiful message. So I'm Thanks. glad that you're putting up with the heat. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. So thank you so much. I'm going to have a link um, to Dr. Julia Marcus and her work and her articles. So I hope the listeners, I hope you can all check it out. And also that you can, you know, share some of that compassion. Thank, Thank you for you coming so out. <laughs> okay. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Everybody Hates Me. Let's Talk About Stigma, a podcast hosted by Dr. Carmen Logie. Join us next week for more inspiring and motivating conversations with stigma leaders from around the world. Mm-hmm.